0: Hooray, hurrah, once again, the smartest man in the world, Proofcast, after a a seven-and-a-half-year layoff, comes back to the ether. I'm sorry, but I had to join the Air Force, and I was there for two hitches. Ronnie Spector. Once again, we uh, take to the ether to join hands and join hearts in honor. The beloved Ronnie Spector. Look who's here. Hi, Jennifer.
1: Hi. How are you? Pretty good, thank you. How, where have you been the
0: last month? Right?
1: I right know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible to believe that heaven doesn't ring with her voice when you get there.
1: It's really wild that she said when she was recording that that nobody told her how awesome she was that that Jack Nietzsche was one of the few, Mm -hmm. strangely. Um, There are so many great uh, interviews with her uh, and this was in Rolling Stone a few years ago. Uh, She remembered the Beatles coming to New York the first time and John Lennon called me and said, Ronnie, we don't know what to do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you right. John come, Lennon called me. you got to come up here and, and get us out of here. They didn't know anybody in America. So me, Estelle, and Nedra, the three Ronettes, would go up there. John Lennon said, please bring the 45 records, and we would listen to records. We had the best time. I remember he got upset because the Supremes came in, because people came in just to take pictures with them. But they were our buddies. We were having fun. They were bigger. The the Ronettes oh, yes, they were, were huge stars and so glamorous. Uh,
0: they had giant singles before the Beatles got here. Yeah, uh, that's so awesome. No, the Ronettes are everything. Um, the supposedly the number one girl group song of all. First of all, they had the look, the giant dues,
1: the amazing, unforgettable look, and her her uh, vocal ticks
0: is the greatest. Yeah, she's from Spanish Harlem and. Uh, uh, Phil Spector put the group together with the big wall of sound, and it, I think in one way that was supposed to be like this interchangeable—you know, I can just change out vocalists. But the raw nuts that never happened because of the power and majesty of them. Mm-hmm. This might be the most famous girl group song of all time, and it's "Boss." That's not it, but when I get to it, you're gonna love it. And here it goes again. This, this is the most famous girl group song. Of all time, and by calling them a girl group, I'm only giving them a, a category. I'm not uh, diminishing them to girl groups. I think the influence on the Beatles and on the Stones and on everybody—your buddy Willie DeVille, your favorite—yeah, um,
1: and Lou Reed, everybody.
0: Uh, there's no Lou Reed did a record with Ronnie uh, yeah. with uh, Ronnie Spector. No one didn't love the girl. Yeah, Lou, Keith, absolutely. Keith Richard
1: worshipped the yeah, Ronettes.
0: Yeah. Well, here here we go, and this is what they call the Wall of Sound, and it's Hal Blaine on drums. Oh, my God. unbelievable
1: she was also so brave and fought her hideously abusive uh ex-husband um not only for her personal freedom but later over her royalties and it took her 20 years to win and she got him. yeah and uh she was asked how does it feel for it to be over and she said it's the best feeling the fact that we won it was like the sun came out and then about the session, Be My Baby, she said, I don't think anybody wanted me to know how good I was. Wow. Well,
0: that's what I mean. There's, I think the, the, his get bag was I could get anyone to do this, but you can't get anyone to be Ronnie Spector because of the majesty and awesomeness of everything.
1: Her, her glamour, her, her mystique, her look. Um, Amy Winehouse. Her entire uh, getup, look, feel, yeah, was an ode to Ronnie Spector, and it's beautiful that Ronnie Spector was a fan of hers as well. She she appreciated the uh, that she had been an influence.
0: Oh, absolutely! She even
1: covered uh,
0: "Back to Black." Here it is. It's from two thousand. No. Yes.
1: much how Amy Winehouse was doing an homage to the great Ronnie Spector, um, we forgot uh, Joey Ramone oh, worshipped, yeah. <laughs> worshipped Ronnie Spector. That's
0: funny. I was just going to say that. It, what, what makes her so awesome is not just the Beatles, and the Stones, belly, but
1: I mean, she was really close friends with Keith Richard yeah. and Joey Ramone.
0: Right. But the Ramones are such a sentimental group in their own special way. Certainly Joey was. And um, he really loved the girl groups, too. Um, yeah. I think it's because they're raw emotion and they're so powerful and I mean what are the the Beatles covered what Mr. Postman by the Marvelettes and uh, you know like every everybody had a go I think and
1: when you read interviews with her you realize that it you know she mentions all these close associations she she was close with Bowie she was close with Jimi yeah. Hendrix and then you
0: right she sang on saying you interviews.
1: realize how what an influence she was to all these different musicians and composers. Singers,
0: yes, and let's not leave out Christmas. Um, the Ronettes' Christmas songs, "Frosty the Snowman" and whatnot, are unbelievable, delightful. Uh, the the power <laughs> and the, 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 the um, it's an onslaught of Christmas. Uh, Ronnie Spector is um, well taking tickets in heaven. You don't you you have to go by her
1: <laughs> to get
0: into heaven. Uh, never mind swirling. Uh, she invented this swirl uh let's get jump into a couple of others here before we catch up on current events we're, i'm sorry we haven't been back in such a long time uh i uh i moved to a cabin and i grew a beard for a while and then i uh
1: were you out chopping wood
0: okay foraging, none of this, foraging, none of this,
1: foraging for mushrooms none
0: of this tracks at all <laughs> i was lying in a ditch crying uh, softly to myself <laughs> And uh, I, I couldn't find my lighter. And that's what's been going on for a month, you guys. Anyway, we're back now, and uh, everything's good again. I'm drinking Coca Cola, so I want you to know the party really never, ever stops here. <laughs> um, this is Calvin Simon and a little group called Funkadelic. He's swirling in the heavens oh, wow. right this minute. Uh, by the way, Mother What? This was on the radio when I was in high school. <laughs> we would drive to school and listen to this on the AM radio, and they were like, tear right? the roof off the mother
1: There were, we've commented on a couple songs, that that just sort of, what And it, it just kind of.
0: I presume they're saying sucker. Unstoppable. And then this part that's so inescapably awesome. So he was a barber when he was 13. He lived in West Virginia. Then he moved to D.C. And he met George Clinton, who was also cutting hair. And George and him and a couple guys who came in to get their hair cut all the time started the parliaments. So they were a (laughs) doo-wop group, right? That's some
1: barbershop. Right?
0: Unbelievable, right? What can happen? They evolved into um, parliament, funkadelic. And of course, the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, This was a giant hit uh, on the AM radio, as I said, in the uh, the 70s. They sent him to Vietnam, uh, Mr. Simon, in the 60s, and he had PTSD but he's, he tried to compartmentalize it he he finally left funkadelic but he did records with a bunch of other people and became a gospel star uh later in life uh but they uh he was a a singer with uh, funkadelic of course he's on Maggot Brain which is a classic and uh cosmic slot uh they went into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and he came back and sang with them like i say later on he went into gospel but his... um just an astonishing member of uh, a group that's too too big to be true. Speaking of influential, <laughs> is there anyone who ever came after Parliament Funkadelic that didn't do Parliament Funkadelic and or sample them uh, and or uh, make them part of their package in Aspire way? to the groove. Well, I mean, we want the funk. We need the funk. You've got to have that funk. Calvin Simon is swirling in the heavens. We're going to get to all the biggies, you guys. I realize it's been a month or two. And there's an enormous slate of people. Let me just uh, stop for a second here, Jennifer. And uh, by stopping, I mean keeping going awesomely. Uh, The Who's Live Anyway group is on the road. And uh, we're going to be in a town so close to you so soon because we're going around the country. Yes, you have to wear a mask and uh, you have to be vaccinated. We are. uh, The next weekend, uh, the 19th, 20th and uh, 21st, we're doing a very, very sexy swing through California. Wouldn't you like to know where we're playing? On Saturday the 19th, Jennifer, we're in Bakersfield. No, you don't know me, but you don't like me. You say you care less how I feel. <laughs> but how many of you who sit and judge me have walked the streets of Bakersfield? I took a thousand riffs with Ryan. I laid under Jeff with all my heels. I had Joel Murray's cheeks on my face <laughs> on the streets of Bakersfield. Uh, that's the 19th. And then, we're. <coughs> excuse me in fabulous riverside california on the 20th uh-huh mm. i don't want any scoffing is, i want you to know no that scoffing but no not you i'm just i can hear it from th- on the other side of the radio wow. uh bob dylan always plays towns like this because this is where people live uh, you
1: mean the never-ending tour yes
0: and uh, i like to consider ours the never-ending tour except that i actually play the keyboards and um We'll be in Riverside, and then back in sexy, sexy Santa Barbara. And we want to thank the people in Santa Barbara. That's on Monday, the twenty first. Why a Monday? It's a holiday, you guys. It's what they almost horribly, uh, inevitably call Presidents' Day now, which where we've combined two presidents, George Washington, the slave owner, and uh, Abraham Lincoln, the, the liberator of slaves, and m- mixed them together into one holiday that we take as a day off. When we were, I'm so old.
1: The enslaved.
0: The enslaved. The the owner of people who he enslaved. The uh, I'm so old that I remember when they were separate holidays, and and the
1: uh, we've got too much work to do, in in this country we we don't have time for holidays. Right for two, we don't have time to celebrate anyone.
0: I was always questioning how Washington's birthday was a holiday, but there you are. Right. I mean, yeah. Okay. Uh, I guess when you're the father of our country. And you've Are got, we
1: really going to use that? Phrase? I think it was his
0: teeth that really set him apart from other presidents. Uh, Santa Barbara, California. We've been there twice this year, and we I can't thank you enough uh, for having us back so soon. Uh, apparently, Royal Oak, Walnut Creek, and um, Santa Barbara. We really can't sell enough Who's Live tickets. Anyway, we'll be improvising out that. We're on the road in March uh, in Ana and then North Carolina, South Carolina. Uh, Uh, Atlanta, Georgia on the March 30th. And then Wisconsin, all over Wisconsin. Madison, Appleton, whatnot. Wausau, home of uh, the giant seafood platter uh, that Bob Durkacz got, which we called the Durkacz of the day. Uh, Then Iowa, Minnesota. Fargo, North Dakota. Yeah, you heard me. Duluth, Minnesota, home of Bob Dylan. And then this is all just April.
1: I believe he's from Hibbing.
0: Oh, he's from Hibbing? Mm -hmm. Oh, but he went to see Buddy Holly in Duluth. Uh, And then... (laughs) Washington. And as
1: I recall, he said, he, and he looked at and me.
0: And man, he looked at me. Uh, Wilmington, Delaware, Hershey, PA, Le- Connecticut, New Hampshire. This is all in April, you guys. And then in May, it's Salt Lake, Boise, Santa Rosa, Modesto. Well, and then
1: Once you're out of the gate, you right? guys are just going.
0: All over Canada in May. Which brings me to my next, uh, uh, people who are swirling in the heavens. The next um, people that I wanted to mention were are, are Louis Anderson and our Bob Saget. Uh, I only knew uh, Louie professionally and uh, I worked on a little show called The Weakest Link with him. We were on it together. Uh, Yes, I won, just in case you wanted to know, (laughs) and Louis couldn't have been nicer. Uh, By all accounts, everybody adored Louis Anderson and uh, a beloved member of our community, of our comedy community. We're very awfully sorry to see him go. And then of course, Bob Saget, who not only did I know um, as a colleague in comedy. Uh, we didn't hang out or anything but I knew him from clubs and hanging around he came to see the Proopcast at Bar Lubitsch
1: that was the only time I ever met him he was really complimentary he was so nice
0: extraordinarily intelligent and sensitive cat Um, the dichotomy is not lost on everybody that he did nothing but family humor on television and um, on stage blue as can be (laughs) and uh, played a guitar and, and did blue humor uh, and then I will tell you this one. It's terrible, but it's true. We were playing the last night of Cobb's Comedy Club before they moved to the other location. the one at the wharf. and uh, At the Anchorage or wherever the hell it was. And, uh, uh, no, the Cannery, wasn't it? The yes, Cannery. Because it, cause it cannery. burned down when Greg Fitzsimmons was on stage. And um, uh, <laughs> I don't blame Greg Fitzsimmons. I just remember him telling me, I'm on stage and the club filled up with smoke. And we we're like, what's happening? Oh it's like, God. the Cannery burned down. Um... Bob was up after me and I went up and did a set. This is how long ago it was. I'll, this will tell you exactly what year it was. I was doing the Dixie Chicks routine. So it was like 2003 or whatever, 2004. And um, I came off and Bob went, Greg, your act is so intelligent. And I'm such a dick. I went, hey, Bob, look into it. And he was like, "Nice." he, nice. I, he was not angry. He took it in my, I, there's a lot of things I regret in my life. Being being snotty with all nice that. I can remember that. Yeah. Well. Anyway, he, that's what I want to say. He was such a lovely guy, uh, and he is decidedly swirling in the herons. Barry Cryer uh, was a veteran of, as they say. A veteran of British TV and radio. It's such an awful way to put it. But
1: boy, was he. I mean, how long was his career? Ever.
0: He was in his 80s and um, he'd written for everybody. I interviewed him a few years ago for a Bob Hope documentary I was doing because he wrote special material for Bob Hope when Bob Hope was in England. But of course, he wrote for Morkham and Wise, The Frost Report, which had everyone from Python in it and Marty Feldman. Um, and then, of course, the two Ronnies, Hello Cheeky and all those. Um, just to call him a veteran is to underplay it a little bit. Barry Choir wasn't so much like a great comedy writer that was a veteran of comedy. He was a, an, a vital member of the comedy scene and I think knew every... A knowing
1: gen- participant. I
0: mean, he knew every generation of comedians. When we moved to England in the 90s is when we met him. He and was a
1: little elf child. He really was. He, he would go see and uh, fraternize with all the, the younger comedians. He kept it going. He, he was a, a fan yeah. and uh, would hang out with everybody. He, his memory was astounding voluminous
0: he could remember every joke he ever knew too he remembered
1: and, everyone he met
0: right and not a Bob Monkhouse in a, in a book Jokes in his head mm-hmm. oh, well, you remember the the story you told me about him and you were having a conversation was it in Edinburgh
1: yes and then a couple of years later I ran into him at the assembly rooms and he remembered what we were talking about
0: yeah the last time you'd spoke yes well that's the kind of person he was so I met him on a, uh, some panel show I can't remember what it was and we were on the same panel together. And there was a pic- I have a nice big color picture of me and Barry Cryer together, which I had him autograph. much. I, I didn't tell him to look into it. I actually had him autograph it. I thought I'd score some cheap points on him. And I said, um, there was some th- question came up about Beethoven or something. And I was playing that he was really old because I was in my 30s. And I said... Uh, Charming. Uh, what was Beethoven like, Barry? And he went, he never picked up a check.
1: <laughs> no, no beat.
0: And then our good friend I was Sweeney. was ready and, for
1: that one. Right.
0: Jim Sweeney and Steve Steen, who were the comedy team of... Sweeney and Steen in England for 125 years. In fact, they were a comedy team so long, I believe we went to their 25th anniversary and their 30th anniversary. We did, we did. And Barry got up, if you recall, at the 25th one and told jokes for 10 minutes. He didn't talk about them. He didn't talk about how great they were. He didn't say a word about Sweeney and Steen. He got up and he did a set. And it killed. And um, he always had a beer in his hand. And we'd come into the room. Very
1: casual. Yeah,
0: he was... uh, a really lovely, lovely, lovely person and and a wonderful comedian. He taught me uh, the half my head is an orange joke, which I'll tell ever so briefly. Uh, If you're a comedian, you might find this funny. Uh, Often uh, civilians, as we like to call them, who aren't comedials, uh, don't get it. Uh, Bloke walks into a pub and half his head's an orange. Uh, And he says, I'll have a lager. And the, the barman says, I couldn't help notice half your head's an orange. And the guy says, yeah, I found it in the genie's lamp and I rubbed it and I got three wishes. And the barman says, well, what did you wish for? And he says, well, first I wished for a million pounds and they got it. Then I wished for a house in the country and I got it. And then the barman says, what was your third wish? And he says, I wish that half my head would be an orange. <laughs> <laughs> I told it a little quickly, but uh, it's, a, it's a joke that all comedians fall over laughing at. Of course, you can translate it and say guy walks into a bar. Uh, in any case, Barry
1: Cryer. Well, it was lovely in, in the... English press how every comedian had a story with that involved him he inter- phoning them yeah. right at, at strange hours of the night right, just, with jokes. Yeah, telling them the jokes. He interacted
0: with everyone and as I recall, what was it, three or four years ago when I saw him in Edinburgh, he was doing a show with Ronnie Golden, a live show. Mm-hmm. They were, he was still working. He never stopped working. and um,
1: Didn't you say you were going to go see that him? That was the
0: thing. I saw him in the hallway at the um, up with the Gilda Balloon. Then I said, I'm going to come see your show. And he went, don't threaten me. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he spoke in jokes. And also, uh, not just his memory of jokes, his memory of show business, like you said, of everything. He could literally remember like almost every moment of his life, which I thought was astonishing. Um, but more than that, he was kind and lovely and supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of comics aren't known for that. They're known for being, as I might have been at one point in my career, sharpish. Uh, but, no,
1: he seemed like a, a yeah. calm presence. He he let uh, everything were around him, and he was this sort of centered being that that dispensed advice and uh, encouragement.
0: Absolutely, and dead funny. Hmm. Uh, fortunately, he lived to a very good age, um, but he is uh, swirling in the heavens now. And we wanted to say goodbye to Barry Cryer because he was a really lovely cat in our time and living in England and hanging out there getting to meet so many comedy heroes has been one of the grooviest things uh Jennifer hooked me up with a show in 2006 where Terry Jones from Monty Python was the director and I went on ahead of Michael Palin Hmm. and yeah and David Frost introduced me (laughs) Uh, so it was like legends of comedy and on that show Ed Edmondson and Rick Mayall wow. who they did a sketch so I got to talk to them. So I was losing my mind the whole time. Um, Barry Cryer, Bob Monkhouse I did a panel show with. The greatest part of the 90s was all the great comics from the 60s and 70s were doing panel shows. Mm-hmm. So you got to meet them all. Uh... uh and Bob Monkhouse too was an absolute gentleman and an unbelievable professional really fun totally the opposite of Barry in so much as like Barry was unassuming the glasses the beer he didn't dress flashy he didn't talk flashy Bob Monkhouse had a pinky well, it's ring was the opposite because yeah. I was just going to say when
1: you introduced me to him we were at Heathrow yeah. and he was in line for the Concord the Concord to yeah. Barbados
0: yeah oh hello Greg <laughs> hello darling <laughs> And Bob Monkhouse had gold rings and a blue a blazer tan. and a, oh, a Barbados a tan. tan. And yeah. he had a Caribbean yeah. Cary Grant tan.
1: He seemed very happy. Oh, and was really so polite. Rich. He was really friendly. He
0: showed me his um, joke books when we worked together. We spent an afternoon together on a show called Gag Tag with uh, Jonathan Ross uh, hosting, and um, we were in the dressing room together all day and. He brought in four or five black ledgers that were the size of legal ledgers, big ones, uh, the, every, all of them several hundred pages big. And he had them in a stack. This is before computers. This is 1993, four, before people really had everything on their computer. And Milton Berle famously had the same thing, mm-hmm. a, a, literally a catalog of jokes Hope, I don't think, ever put it down in a book. I think he just had it.
1: Didn't he just harangue the writers? Yeah,
0: the writers had to deliver it to him, which was another story altogether, which is what I was asking Barry Cryer about when I interviewed him, because he wrote right. Jokes for Hope. You literally had to read the jokes to him on the phone and or send no him on No pressure the, there. Yeah, uh, send him a fact. Imagine and, the fun. And evidently, Hope would go, mm-mm, like, you didn't like, you know, if you didn't like the joke, it just laid there. Uh, and Bob Monkhouse had ledger books, and he opened them up, and I said, "May I see it, please?" And he, well, uh, in red, uh, uh, mother-in-law jokes; in blue, golf jokes; in green, uh, marriage jokes; in orange, I'm not kidding.
1: What was no. it like the the uh, British Museum? Did, did you have to put gloves yes. on? To I wore touch gloves it?
0: And, uh, and goggles, and <laughs> I, I wasn't allowed to breathe. I had to stand in another room with the plastic things, like the Andromeda strain or the Wrath of Khan or whatever. With the, what's the one where Spock gets a goes into the radiation room? Uh, I had to stand there with gloves like that. And, uh, yeah, it was amazing, though. And I said to him, so what's this? And he's like, well, these are all golf jokes, you see. And I was like, Uh and there was page after page. (laughs) And then so when we got out there on the show, uh, he was riffing on something, and it wasn't going anywhere. He did a bunch of jokes, and it was okay. And at one point I said, are you done? Because I have jokes. And the place, uh, (laughs) again, Bob Monkhouse took it with very good grace. And um, uh, in any case, Barry is... um, a beautiful person in a lot of the British comics. Of course, today's British comics as well. But uh, it was such a pleasure to meet all the people from the 60s and 70s who were so funny mm-hmm. and so professional and so awesome. Why don't we talk about... Uh...
1: Andre Leon Talley? Yeah! Perhaps. Um, this has been a, a, a brutal period of time Ugh. in so many ways. We've lost so many people. and And we had spoken... On, this, on the on uh, the podcast about uh, Andre Leon Talley, the uh, fashion historian, uh, the he had a memoir out called "The Chiffon Trenches" that we quoted from. He was, um, I think, we read from a supportive essay that he wrote about Beyonce uh-huh. being uh, on the cover of Vogue and hiring the first black photographer for the cover of American. Can you Vogue. that?
0: By the way, that was when two years ago.
1: Yeah. Um, Andre Leon Totley was almost always the only Black person in the front row mm-hmm. of, of a fashion show. He was uh, his first gig was uh, out of college was uh, interning for Diana Vreeland at the Met.
0: Explain who Diana Vreeland is for. Our
1: well, Diana audience. Vreeland was an editor of Vogue for many years, but she was also she she uh, developed the Institute of Costume at the Met in New York at the museum um, and. She was the the arbiter of style and taste for a long time for New Yorkers, and yeah. uh, was also a hilarious, uh, larger than life figure. I think her. We we always like that story about her visiting Richard Rogers in Paris when he was designing the pumpkin. Oh my, Center, right,
0: the, the famous architect.
1: <laughs> yeah, and she came to visit with her son, and Richard Rogers told her son. That he got uh, some food in.
0: Sandwiches and tea, well, was Well, because
1: he was married to Ruth Rogers of River right. Cafe in London. And uh, Diana Reeland's son said, food? Mother doesn't eat. Yeah. And apparently what she wanted was vodka. She, and, he
0: ran down and, and, down the store and, and a of vodka.
1: And cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. So this is, you know, this this wild, crazy character who had a... And went up on
0: the scaffolding. Did she not have to oh, drink any vodka? Of
1: course she did. She she had a, a famous red salon, red-colored salon in, in New York. And uh, she saw in Andre Leon Talley, someone like herself in some ways, um, that he knew everything that could be told about the history, yeah. the people, the, the uh couture houses, the kind of fabric, the what it meant, uh, what those kind of seams and sleeves and periods of fashion revealed. And as a very tall black man who was raised in Durham, North Carolina, by his grandmother, mm. uh, they didn't have a lot, and he, he went with her to church every Sunday, and It was uh, a profound effect on him that that his grandmother and the women that she was friends with took such care with dressing up. It was a ritual. It meant something to them them and and the respect that they had for each other and and, uh, how she kept her house and uh, the hats and the gloves that they wore. Super formal. What what that connoted to them. Um, He went to art college became uh diana vreeland's intern from there he was he worked for warhol andy warhol mm-hmm. at interview um he made an impression because fran leibovitz said to him when she was writing a column for interview you're the only person that's ever done the job here
0: <laughs> he's at he, he would Meaning actually, everyone else just took drugs and hung around and well, talked on the he phone. didn't know
1: what you know yeah. what the hell was happening it, he would actually give her yeah. the records of, oh, well, this person phoned and right. here's what they said. Um, here's someone amazingly, uh, you know, charming and, uh, knowledgeable. Mm. What are you doing here? I think is what Fran of thought. Why, why
0: are you the receptionist? Why aren't you running the place? He
1: like Fran but did not have a altogether positive view of Warhol. Uh-huh. Uh, I think Warhol, uh, hit on him several times, it made him uncomfortable to be right. fetishized like that. I think that that was the the real, a tightrope that he had to live with to be in the fashion world mm-hmm. as the taking up the space as as, uh, he never I don't think ever announced himself as gay. But really I don't think so, no. I, I think that, you know, to, to be this, uh, man. Uh, who's, His memoir
0: is called the chiffon trenches. I
1: know. I know. But I'm saying this is old school. I know, right? yeah, this yeah. is old school. He is. This is what he said um, about himself. Uh, I had the rungs of the ladders and I climbed them. I, If I had that title, I deserved it because I was educated and very smart. As a black man, you have to be 500 times smarter than the white person sitting next to you on the front row. Because you were black, and because of the fact that you were black, you have not had the opportunities. You've ha- you have overcome all kinds of odds to get there. I had overcome the odds to get to the front row of the fashion world. I had overcome the odds of lack of opportunities. I had a scholarship. I spoke impeccable French. I could articulate. I knew who Marcel Proust was and had read him. I had read Flaubert. I had done my homework. The tower of strength of my blackness is my body of knowledge and memory and an experience, and therefore I am unique. Um, The thing that was shocking when he left Vogue, when he he was summarily, he thought he would be given a position as an editor. He was best friends with Lagerfeld, uh, Oscar de la Renta. He was invaluable to all these people. Yes. If you wanted to know, if you had run out of inspiration, he was the person you could turn to like Galeano would to you know, where do I go with this? Mm-hmm. I mean, he he created so many people's careers, he was so instrumental. And yet he was never given the advantages. He he only got so far. And when he, yes. he never passed away editor, right? No, and when he, he was he was the fashion advisor. Um,
0: but not editor.
1: And well, he wanted to be editor of a magazine. <clears> oh <throat> ah, yeah. And he wasn't even given a, a tribute in this month's Vogue. Really? He's the cover of uh, Ebony Magazine yeah. um, this month. But uh, no, and it took, uh, what, 15 hours for them to even acknowledge that he passed away. Um, when he,
0: Is that cause he was swirled on, and no. if
1: anyone swirled on in a very large caftan, yeah. it would be him. <laughs> yes. Um, he he was making half as much.
0: Oh my God!
1: As other contributors, it's really shocking and horrible uh, what he put up with uh, to be in a world that he that he yeah. loved. That he he lo- loved the the glamour, the the pageantry, um, and to be treated that way. But he. Uh, I think had made peace or maybe not made peace but acknowledged that he felt proud that so many people uh, the the current editor of British vogue is a black man mm-hmm. uh, that he got to see uh, beyonce on the cover with a, a a fashion spread that that was her doing she chose how she was being presented with a black photographer um, I don't think any of that would have happened without him. There's so no. many uh, powerful black designers now that get play. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, and all the
0: stars that he talks to or talked to that was I mean, influenced. He, he went to every event. He, were-
1: he was friends with so many important artists. He was friends with Basquiat and Keith Haring, mm. uh, not just Warhol. I mean, his whole world, he, w- he was uh, you know, a- dancing the night away at Studio 54 when he right. was young. Um, but I mean, even
0: today, or today, when stars would go to events, they'd always go over to him and he would talk to them very
1: well. I think if, like you, you, say, if with Beyonce, you knew what you were doing, you would ask him for advice.
0: Her taste is pretty unyieldingly awesome. And yes. that thing she did in the Louvre, um, that gigantic fashion art piece, was so fabulous. And of course, her giant video and mm-hmm. her whole career. But I, I think you're right. The vogueness of it and the. the that the taste, well, making references.
1: Power. I mean, it, Lemonade it makes references to certain artists, mm-hmm. visual artists. Um, that's that's your guy. Andre yeah. Leon Talley is the person that you would ask right. for advice. He you knows everything. Yeah, yeah, and be inspirational in that.
0: And fashion, art, uh, 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 music, language, literature. Uh, 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 look, really, there's no field he wasn't kind of, and like you say, absolute complete knowledge of the history of fashion
1: uh shelby ivy christie who's a fashion and costume historian uh she also is from north carolina uh she said as an hbcu graduate as a black person who worked at vogue i have the utmost respect for andre leon talley it's not hyperbole to say that anyone who is black and works in fashion in some part is there because of things that he did so
0: oh yeah
1: awesome for him to have been that person for no, so many,
0: he's the groundbreaker in fashion, and it's just a fabulous personality. Well,
1: and also, isn't there's no, a movie
0: about him. What's the movie called? People can. It's right, really there's, good. A, there's
1: a documentary uh, about him. Uh, well, it's it's based on the chiffon trenches that came out a few years ago, uh-huh. and uh, also I want to say that like, for him to have been uh, overweight for so long not only are you the black man the tall black man but mm. the overweight tall black man uh, we know that the editor of Vogue pressured him to to lose weight that it was an issue that, right. uh, that he thought that that helped uh, he, that he said that he was too old and too overweight for them yeah. they didn't want to deal with him right. for him to just be that bigger than life person to take up the space and the in costumes, their world you know, and make it his world yeah yeah Right. He always wore uh, Manolo Blahnik's. Super
0: fabulous. Giant capes. Yes. I mean, he was like a, re- a royalty receiving people, I felt, like, the last uh, few years. Because everybody paid homage to him wherever they mm-hmm. went. And he mm-hmm. was... Mm-hmm. Whether, he made, he never, made
1: people feel good.
0: Well, right. But never mind Anna Winner and all the you know, the names you know of like, big fashion people and designers. He was the one, yes. I think, that people want to. Because he's the accessible, brilliant one about fashion. And like you say, positive. He made you feel good. He wasn't he snotty was like funny. Carl. He you was know, funny. We, we, we spend enough time on this podcast talking about the the undead Carl Lagerfeld. But I mean, Andre Leon's sort of the... Uh,
1: is it called The Gospel According to Andre? It is. It's called that's... The
0: Gospel According to Andre. And I, I suspect it's streaming. It's quite good. He was a giant Hillcat and of course a giant Obama person. And he really
1: mm-hmm. speaks articulately. Oh articulate. my God. Oh, that's another story. Um, the the awful moment uh, when Everyone was watching the results of the stolen 2016 election. Ah, yes, um,
0: the I, Russian election.
1: Andre Leon was in the kitchen with uh, at a party with Fran Leibovitz. Surprise! And when they found out the the horrible results, he started eating, and Fran Leibovitz started smoking.
0: <laughs> and, but
1: I, I love that the two of them were together yeah. at that moment, yeah. doing you know their their stress thing, um, as a uh, At the end of this piece, uh, Shelby Ivy Christie says, his writing is beautiful. His language is so expansive. Um, I wish the industry had treated him much better. He deserved much, much better.
0: No question, because he gave more than uh, almost anyone I can think of, such a gigantic figure without ever having been a designer and or uh, editor of Vogue or anything like that. Just like an all-around arbiter. Who, but really had uh, had the goods? You mm-hmm. know, like the reason why he was the arbiter was he had made himself into something so magnificent
1: mm-hmm.
0: by sheer dint of hard work and awesomeness
1: mm-hmm.
0: and fabulosity. Because no one could have told him to do all that.
1: No, and and he really uh, he he never uh, minimized. His time in North Carolina it was, mm. and, and the older ladies, like his grandmother, who raised him and made him who he was, and uh, the deep respect he had for them. Yeah. He, he loved talking about her. And his book is, is really delightful, uh, Chiffon Trenches, and the documentary is as well. So I heartily encourage you to check out both.
0: Awesome. But uh, yeah, Andrew Leontalli is an a, a un- unbelievably courageous and fantastic figure. And so much color. Uh, shooting across the sky in multicolors. James Matumi, uh, his father was a jazzman, Jimmy Heath. James Matumi is someone whose name I don't think is very famous. But he played in Miles Davis's band. He played with Lonnie Liston-Smith. He was a producer. He was a writer. He was a player. He was a singer. What can I tell you?
1: Well, you, you know his music.
0: Because he wrote so many hits <laughs> and is involved in so many things. Stephanie Mills, who was on an awesome versus with Chaka Khan, where she really, really uh, threw down, uh, had a giant hit with him. She, was, of course, was a teenage sensation. He did such a sophisticated... Disco funk sound, um, then I think we're gonna. It's so groovy.
1: That's
0: it. Sophistifunk, I believe, is what and he it, called it.
1: That's an unstoppable hit. It,
0: yeah, it really is. We have to get to the chorus because I, I don't want to cut her off. At it, it's so um, recognizable when we get there. Unbelievable! Like you say, that's unstoppable. Um, he worked with everybody. Here's Roberta Flack, who was one of the giant singer-songwriters. Is this or, the
1: one with Donny Hathaway? Yeah,
0: and Donny Hathaway, who was a brilliant singer. Um, and this was a giant pop hit for them in the middle of their awesome 70s careers. This is a slow dance, so if you're out there by yourself, I would wrap your arms around you. If you're with someone you love right now, cover them in blueberry jam. Uh, yeah. He could really, really uh, do it all. Here's the Phyllis Hyman gem that he wrote and produced that you may recognize as well. Uh, you recognize all of them because <laughs> it's this is the radio... should have had a, uh, well, I hate when people say that. She's an awesome rhythm and blues artist, and she did have an awesome career. Um, she could have been bigger, I think, because she's really, really talented. And obviously this yeah, record is wonderful. a giant, uh, a giant record for her. James McCummie's work is so sophisticated and elegant, and the hooks.
1: Well, I, I can't believe what, how many people that he worked with.
0: Lonnie. I mean,
1: Lonnie Liston-Smith, he, Miles Davis.
0: Yeah, Hello. Miles Davis. Let's uh, play the Miles Davis one. Uh, Here's the... What you
1: gonna do with my loving?
0: Um, uh, right on. This one is, um, from the Miles Davis album, Matumi. Is this, uh,
1: 1972?
0: That, yeah. He wrote all the jams on this, mostly.
1: This one is wild. Yeah,
0: you... you buckle up because <laughs> this is some percussive jazz Miles was in a bag at this point as you might imagine and, uh, yeah don't
1: get in his way
0: yeah this is jazz y'all the, the, the song is called Machumi. it's on the album get up with it
1: Was on
0: the corner. Oh, is it? Have I gotten the name of the album wrong? Yeah. That wouldn't surprise me. How about that
1: part? Or
0: emoji. <laughs> oh, it is on the corner. But the song's called Machimi. Yeah. I get so confused, Jennifer. It's, but you know how what? wild is
1: it it's you were James Matumi and Miles Davis said, uh, this song's called Matumi.
0: Yeah. Um, I think that speaks to what a badass he was. This one you'll know because it was um, covered and sampled a g- bajillion times. I'm going to start spinning it here and then we're going to get to the awesome part. <laughs> this is from his group, his rhythm and blues group, which was called Matumi. <laughs> um At the beginning of hip-hop, everybody... Well, not the beginning. All through hip-hop, people were sampling stuff. And this record got sampled. And then Notorious B.I.G. had a giant hit. And the song's called Juicy Fruit. And you'll get the idea uh, pretty soon. It's a stripped-down song. It's not as lush as the other Sophistifunk. Yeah. I think this was Michimi's big, big hit. Certainly on the soul charts, it was huge. Wrigley's Gum tried to sue
1: James Michimi. That is just wild.
0: Because they have a gum, as you know, called Big Red. No, Juicy Fruit. (laughs) And uh, they thought the song was about Juicy Fruit Gum. And (laughs) they had to go to court... Or they had lawyers, and as this expli- as uh, it's described here in the uh, Guardian, Matumi explained to Juicy to Wrigley's lawyers, the song had nothing to do with chewing gum. Quote: It's about oral sex, an experience he later described as quote one of the highlights of my
1: life. <laughs> I hope that uh, meeting was in an office. Me uh, too. Lawyers on either side. We're
0: terribly concerned, Mr. Matumi, that you're misappropriating the phrase juicy fruit, which, as you know, is the intellectual property of the Wrigley Corporation. Now, my understanding is this song refers to juicy fruit gum several times during the course, and then the word juicy is repeated. Um, It's not about your gum. (laughs) Neither, uh, neither is the double meant song <laughs> it's a great great record super sexy as you can tell james matumi is uh swirling in the heavens and for all we know has organized the heavenly choir into something even more beautiful and by the way uh he's on a million records so like you said lonnie liston smith roberta flack uh,
1: well, he's on uh, his father, uh, Jimmy Heath. Jimmy albums. Heath, right? His, his uncle was a jazz musician as well in Philadelphia. Yeah, he's pretty badass. It never asked. stops, really.
0: No. Uh, what are we going to do here? Are we going to go Biden? Or are you going to go Portier? Are you going to go?
1: Yeah, we can. We can uh, talk about all of the wild things that have happened all right, with let's this do administration. Because we- it, you know, let's be. Uh, Cheerleaders, let's be a beat about this because so much good has happened.
0: What we're talking about, baby, is uh, yeah, we're um, we're a year into this with um, President Biden and Vice President Harris, and uh, my goodness me, what a difference a year makes. Look, legislation, people, money, stuff, um, calm, judicious people who are putting awesome um, women and people of color on the court uh, system. Uh,
1: right, actual uh, people who know what they're doing, right. with experience and and uh, with sound reasoning.
0: Uh, probity, it's a new thing. Yeah, probity, responsibility, uh, stewardship, uh, a sense of taking care of everyone in the country, even if they didn't vote for you. Um, none yeah. of that sneering, calling reporters stupid, saying people are stupid, saying people are dumb. Uh, no, no screaming at the press from helicopters. None of that. We're back uh, to having someone who takes the job really seriously and is doing. I think um I can't think of other Johnson and Roosevelt are the only two that really come to mind as far as like making the world move shaking the earth up in a, in a when you're facing covid and after having 4 years of uh, uh you know mandarin uh mussolini there's also, no coming back from that
1: there's just there's nothing to compare to having the first woman first woman of color Thank you. as vice president yeah. and also uh This administration has gotten 46 judges approved to lifetime positions, more black women judges than ever in history in the U.S.
0: And you know what? Uh, That's only making things right. And it's way too after the fact. And it's so long in coming. And the one thing you can always say is uh, it was never going to happen when the other people were in. Never, ever, ever, ever. And so I think that if you think he's not doing the right thing or that he's not pushing tacking left enough for you, I think having child poverty and giving out housing assistance and, and building up infrastructure and all those things is the most, let's put the uh, Republican word on it, socialist thing you can do, and so much as everything is for the public good. He's not stealing money and putting his name on everything. He's not doing the things that the other president only did, which is lie and steal.
1: Well, th- that's the, uh, the shocking thing about mainstream media right now is that obviously they, they were really riding high mm. with our fear. Now that we have competency... And uh, we have a a Department of Justice that doesn't tell what they're doing every step of the way. Because, by the way, there have been over 730 indictments. Over January 6th. So, yeah. So, if if this whole, like, nothing's happening. Well, you know, we're building uh, to something. And you start with the lower realm and move up. So, I think everybody... Uh, keep the faith on that one
0: well you know look Comey said what he was investigating and it changed the course of the election right in 2015 when or 2016 when he blathered so the idea that you really want Merrick Garland telling you everything he's investigating is stupid one and two they are investigating everything they're not telling you because they like to put cases together I think Mm -hmm. that are a little more airtight and this is a really important one it well, has we know to be-
1: details of, of indictments, um, but uh, the idea that, that things would happen, you know, I want him arrested overnight, I want this to that's an authoritarian kind of impulse. Uh, horribly, democracy is slow because it's fair.
0: But I want to punish him now, Jennifer. <laughs> Right? No, I mean, obviously, we all feel that impulse. We all feel like everything's dragging on forever. But I think this case has to be presented unbelievably step-by-step and really, really... Airtight. Thoughtfully and airtight. And it will be presented on regular TV. They will show it on TV. And they're going to go through everything they did. They're going to have hearings. Yeah. They're going to go through everything they did that's wrong. And the DOJ is going to come through with a zillion indictments. No, it won't be like what happened with Mueller that was disappointing to everyone. Which is, by the way, Mueller indicted 35 people and arrested a bunch of people and took fortunes away from people.
1: Well, that's the frustrating thing, too. People didn't actually read.
0: Well, and parts. Barr slow-rolled his his report, you know. Like, they mm-hmm. redacted it so hard that we really didn't know until, oh, I don't know, today, the day we're recording.
1: Well, we've we just in the last month and a half, we've discovered so many dastardly details. I mean, there, <laughs> there, there was a monster munching documents <laughs> in <laughs> the...
0: Of uh, office. Uh, yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. for
1: God's sakes, it's, it's and the like, porcelain shredder. It, it, you know, the end was like, it, I imagine the last scenes of Scarface.
0: Oh yeah. Him just laying in a pile of uh, Adderall yeah. and, and, and shoot up papers everywhere that he's had to spit out because he couldn't finish all of them. Uh, no, it's beyond, 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 not to mention, uh, Jennifer and I have been hiding, uh, for the last month from the Gaspacho police. Uh, I'm in possession of chopped bell peppers and eggs. And um,
1: Don't let that get out. Delicious
0: bro. croutons. And Jim Acosta, the reporter on CNN, who's often quite good, um, said, after you have gazpacho police, what's next? Sangria law. And I thought that was the funniest wow. of all the... Well, I mean, everybody's tried pretty hard, including me. Uh, uh, but I think the uh, you can't give them enough credit. You really can't give Biden and Harris enough credit for doing it in the face of giant resistance and... All you ever see on TV and in the papers that everyone's upset over inflation, yeah.
1: which I don't think,
0: <laughs> look, I mean, I don't get around all the time. I don't talk to everybody on earth, but the people I do talk to and the things I experience, for instance, when I'm out on tour. Just casual Mexico,
1: conversating. Yeah, they I, mention inflation as a worry. Right. So I can't get to sleep tonight, Greg, because of inflation.
0: Look, Jennifer, it's so funny you say that. And then that. on
1: the other hand, they're, they're replacing lead pipes to improve our drinking water mm-hmm. and that just gets nothing. That gets no play,
0: no. That, which is the most important thing. Um, Flint, so many places and don't have any water.
1: Right. They're starting in New Jersey, right? Yeah. With the with replacing the drinking water. Pipes. You mean
0: practical things? Yes. Not pretending there's infrastructure. That change right? your life
1: yeah. on a day to day basis. Change your child's health, for instance.
0: We checked into the hotel in San Jose um, about a month ago to play a gig there, and I said, "How's it going?" You know, and I said, "I actually asked about a Mexican place." Uh, Mexican food to eat nearby. And now I'm blanking on the name of it, but it was awesome. And one of the guys at the hotel.
1: Los Olivos? No.
0: No, no, that's in Santa Barbara. Um, but what I was going to say is, I go, do you know a good Mexican? I mentioned a couple. There's this one taco place and this other place. And he said, I wouldn't go to either because Joe Biden has inflation rising so quickly <laughs> that I tell all of our guests who are checking into the reef, you know, uh, uh, to San Jose, which is booming downtown. Uh, Part of that was, I think the inflation really scared a lot of the people at the show. It was the night the Niners happened to beat Green Bay and we, uh, we inoculated Aaron Rodgers. And uh, he, you know, I went out and I said, hey, good evening. You know, the Niners won. And from the back of the crowd, I heard, um, what about this inflation? Mm-hmm. It, to me, it's keeping me from having a good time. Um, we
1: d- uh, to be fair, Greg, we did hear from one multimillionaire who was worried about inflation. Yes. In casual conversation, he brought it up. As he, he weakly tried to posit a negative about Biden-Harris. Sure, I got my booster shot, and I don't have to worry about dying. Uh-huh. But what about inflation? Yes. My property in Malibu. Right.
0: The inflation's kind of decreasing the value of it. That's the other thing, you know. I have no sympathy in no time at all. For anyone who has questions, Doing their own research doesn 't believe what 's happening, drives a truck you uh, mean in anti- Canada. Science? There's a, a vaccine that will literally save your life. By and the if way, you don't most wanna...
1: truckers in Canada are of vaccinated.
0: Course. It's it's free, and you can get it any way you want, and you can literally get it at any drugstore, anything like that. And it has been that way for a while, and it still is. There's still zillions of COVID testing centers. There's still mm-hmm. zillions of vaccination. And we, we
1: got our our free from the government COVID tests in the mail, right?
0: And then masks. I think you go ask for right. And those at the are pharmacy. free. Um, and in the face of all that, if you're still, well, you know. I don't know. It might cause some kind of problem. I have no time for you at all. You're the reason why this is dragging on until the end of time. The unvaccinated are, in essence, a political party uh, that's trying to destroy the public health Mm -hmm. and the public psyche. Because the longer that goes on, they can sow their division and horribleness. Whereas we all know that it's not that we want to go back to normal. Normal is this weird state of mind. It's it's an abstraction. Well,
1: I don't think you go back to normal when last month we lost sixty thousand people in America. No,
0: there's too many people dying. And you know,
1: just uh, in LA, we know what more than half a dozen people that had uh, came down with COVID in in the the last last two months. Yeah, and and the the youngest two. uh, a daughter of a friend of mine, she's a teenager. She didn't have her booster yet. And so it was really brutal. And so it's yeah, not... It, she got
0: it, quite ill. She,
1: it's And it's you not a, young. Yeah, a teenager. She's. It's not a walk in the park. It's not anything like... It's not over, people. So we're still fighting this. And we need to fight it together.
0: I'll be wearing a mask, Jennifer, on all the trips. Obviously on the plane, which I hope that rule carries on. Because it was one of my... Things that reassure you. Flown you. We went on to San Francisco. We flew there, but so you got to see, like at the airport and on the Mm planes, people really do wear their masks, and there wasn't any brawls or anything.
1: Frankly, as someone who has lived in London, lived in LA, London, um, with uh, breathing in that wonderful air, I don't see the problem with putting on a mask. I want to shield myself. I want to wear four masks. London and
0: L.A. Yeah. You'd run into chunks of air. What was that? (laughs) sulfur dioxide. (laughs) You can't breathe outside, but you can't smoke inside. Yeah. London and L.A. have the foulest, most poison. Although L.A.'s air is better than it was in the... 30 years ago, it was terrible. It's because they barred emissions and gasoline and lead and made the engines better and... They required it, and uh, the last president was trying to literally undo all that. No,
1: and Biden is gung-ho electric vehicle, Um, your former high school friend.
0: Jennifer Grunholm, yeah. Secretary Granholm, the Secretary of Energy.
1: She's spearheading that. By the uh, way,
0: that's what we called her in high school.
1: Secretary of Energy. <laughs> yes. No, we could
0: have, though. She was very energetic. She was a good dancer. I, I acted with her in plays. Well, you and know, that's
1: important to be in the cabinet. You got well, to I, be able to dance. She's highly There's intelligent. There's going to be society of yeah,
0: She's highly intelligent and really motivated. And uh, she's a really nice person. And we're lucky to have her as a... Uh, I, I can't believe I know someone in the cabinet because I went to high school with them. But the truth is, she really is a worthy... Uh, intellectual this, this person this is what who's,
1: comes with age huh this is what comes with age that you, you know someone aged, in the cabinet yeah you've aged oh, into that era
0: and uh, of all places uh, there's two three people from San, four people from San Carlos ever there's four people from San Carlos California Catherine Bigelow the director Barry Bonds D- oh Barry Bonds of course Barry lived grew up in San Carlos uh uh, uh what I mean, I, you, you threw me with Barry oh, Bonds because now visions of sugar plums are dancing in my head and you're going to force me to go to a terrible
1: Jennifer Granholm to-
0: a terrible Dana Carvey <laughs> who went to Bel- uh, Carlmont I went to San Carlos High, a little bit older than me but he's a comedian from San Carlos and very famous and uh, Jennifer Granholm uh, are, the, are the sum total
1: yeah it's, it's not a big place t- t-
0: when we all lived there 20,000 people
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and sandwiched nestled you might say in the hills uh between the reservoirs on one side on the back and the flats on the other side and between redwood city and belmont so it's pretty exotic <laughs> uh if you <laughs> blink what a, what was, was saying a, a coma with a mall except there was no mall in san carlos however we did and this is the part that you and i always talk about in the 60s and 70s when i grew up there um, we had two streets, you, you know, Laurel and El Camino, and there were three movie theaters within like ten blocks, mm-hmm. and one of them was the Art Theater, mm-hmm. F.R.D. Or the second Th- run. This
1: makes me think of, and I
0: went to all those theaters every week for a hundred years. Uh,
1: the Castro in San Francisco yeah. is in a bit of duress right now, which is just unthinkable to me, because uh, it was a the focal social scene of the Castro neighborhood and it's certainly where almost everyone that i know saw uh old films accompanied by an organ oftentimes there would be uh, a sort of chorus of dra- uh-huh. drag artists in the front row that would uh, emote along with uh, the women or right. uh, the women. <laughs> whatever uh, film was on it was, it was an important hub, and the idea that they're going to try to turn it into something else, because, you know, awful, because of the pandemic, it? because uh, tech people don't support arts venues yeah. as they might with their largesse these are hard times for places like that and it it made me think uh last night i was talking to you about the the fact that in the film club we had screened last month uh the 400 blows by Truffaut, which is a marvelous film from 1959 that ushers in the new wave in french cinema well i had a wonderful teacher in northern virginia who she took the whole class to see Four Hundred Blows at the Biograph that was downtown.
0: Is this in high school?
1: Uh, middle school. Really? And uh, she she took it. She would take us to the Biograph, and. It was very exciting to us. We you know, we felt adult. Oh right. It was right. it was really uh you know, we were thirteen. Right. And uh she would take us to a French bistro. Wow. Um the midnight movie at the biograph in those days was Pink Flamingo. And okay. I remember we asked her about that and she you know, it was like very it was very uh you know, seemed clandestine and exciting. We're in this yeah. this uh gritty part of dc watching a french film
0: right, right. after going for french food
1: uh, right and and uh how wonderful is it to have had that experience to uh have an appreciation yeah. of foreign films that were already at a retro theater uh With a teacher who loved teaching so much that she made that happen. I don't think that that was something that was suggested by the school. That was something she made happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, her name was Ileana Aleem. And she told us in class about how, as a child, her mother and her had escaped from Romania. um, And her mother told her because she was falling asleep, she said... This is
0: during World War II.
1: This is before World ah. War II. Uh, right before. Um, that uh, if she woke up, that she was to speak in French because they had uh, forged documents. Wow. And so, I mean, I remember the whole class was just in awe of her. Yeah, riveted. But also, I, w- I wanted to say that because uh, I lived in a neighborhood in Northern Virginia, at the end of the street, there was a big sign that said, Free Soviet Jewry, hello, Russia, Um, and uh, what the current state we're in now, that it's not ancient history, that the people that uh, I knew as a kid who were so uh, warm with their... Mm -hmm. uh, their time, their, their <laughs> sharing their knowledge, sharing their past, but also, um, she was a lot of fun. Yeah. And to have come you're from that. And French. Mm-hmm. And she also, um, we had dinners at her apartment in D.C. with, uh, Holocaust survivors, uh-huh. who, who I also knew, uh, who lived on our street. This is not, this is, you know, this is here and now. Yeah. This is uh, knowledge I think that is important to share.
0: Very much so. Look at the state of things right now.
1: Yeah.
0: We're in a place where anti-Semitism, racism, homophobia, transphobia, uh, 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 anti-Asian violence, mm-hmm. Russia encroaching on Europe. They're literally trying to start a ground war in Europe. This is World War Two, you guys. That's what a ground war in Europe is. It's it. That's what... And,
1: I mean, it, to have someone with... The breadth of experience in the White House right now, is even everything. a foreign policy
0: expert. Yes,
1: yes, like Joe and Biden? also someone with with morals, mm-hmm. with, with uh, well defined ethics, and and uh, he's laying it on the line. Today we read the uh, the readout from the White House.
0: Yeah, he said to Putin, "What was it? Fuck with me and fuck <laughs> around and find out." I think was the <laughs> sentence. Here's my pronouns: suck and dick. Um, he, yeah, he was, he laid it on the line with Putin. He's, uh, I, I think it's really pertinent what you were saying. Um, the Holocaust isn't a million years ago. Nazi Germany isn't a million years ago. Um, autocracies and um, losing democracy happen gradually and they happen over the course of a, a sometimes one generation well, and to lose
1: sight of history is to lose sight of everything
0: so i mean i, I know you guys think we cheerlead a lot for biden and harris and we're going to continue to do that because there's a black woman vice president y'all um <laughs> but the reason we cheerlead so hard is they're aware of the peril and that the next two elections are even more important than the two elections before which were th- The three elections, 2016, 2018, 2020, were the most important elections ever. But these two are even more important. Mm -hmm. Biden and Harris are aware of that, that they are chasing them down. They don't spend a lot of time fulminating in public about it. The speech that Biden gave in January, where he laid down the law and said, this is what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And he let it be known that he thinks the Republicans who support the big lie are not happening, baby. Mm-hmm. And now you started to see a few crocs. I'll never say that they're all going to slide over and become moral in any. Oh no, like they're
1: right. only doing that because they can see the writing on the wall.
0: Yeah, the legal writing. On
1: yes, the wall.
0: that a bunch of people are going to go to jail. Maybe I, not for a thousand years. I mean, but Pence they are.
1: finally said. Yeah. That. It wasn't the truth. Exactly. <laughs> that we were lying, but we didn't
0: mean to. Uh, in any case, uh, I think that story is beautiful. I wish I had. I mean, we went and saw movies and stuff, and we went to David's Delicatessen. We did go see operas and plays, but not quite as personal as that.
1: Well, I I, I just think that laying the foundation to, to go to a, a movie theater mm-hmm. that is showing vintage films, foreign films, yes. to expand your mind. I mean, I always loved in San Francisco to go to the Roxy or the York or the Castro and see Fassbender. You know, like they would show mm-hmm. every single Fassbender film. In right, a two over week two
0: weeks. Period. Yeah. And yeah. we
1: would all go every right. single night. I can think
0: of a million different... Uh, we love
1: doing that in Paris. Oh,
0: in, in Paris. In Paris,
1: they yep. will show a, a Fritz Lang movie at four in the afternoon. Right,
0: and then another vintage movie at six, a different one. Yeah, it's Turkey, a
1: when Paris, Turkey. When you were in Istanbul. Yeah. The film,
0: there, uh, Intensive Country.
1: Yeah, there, there were... Uh, I remember... Films from several different countries on in yeah. the, the evening. It was it was really fantastic. Oh, and
0: on TV uh, in Turkey, on TV, like in France, um, VO. Mm-hmm. They show the movies in the original language, and then they put the subtitles of Turkish on them. So if a movie was in English, you could watch it in English, but with Turkish subtitles, which is awesome in France too. Except for a few stations that have
1: dubbing. in England, there would be the strangest. Uh, you know, one-off what what film by Joseph Losey is this? I wonder Dirk if that's Bogart? still
0: going. BBC Two used to have it going on in the old days. Well, Jennifer's Film Club is still raging on. Last month we showed The Four Hundred Blows. We didn't make it because Daddy was a little ill. No, I don't have COVID. No, I haven't had COVID. We've been very, very lucky, and even tested with doctors and all that, jazz. I uh, I had bronchitis and I couldn't go. But next week on the fifteenth, right after Valentine's Day. Uh, we're showing *To Sir With Love as part of our awesome Sidney Poitier mm. uh, tribute that we're going to do right now. And also, <laughs> uh, the American Cinematheque, much to their um, credit, is having an all-month Sydney Poitier uh, groove-a-thon uh, at their theaters here in Los Angeles. Awesome. And so we're part of that. And we were really fortunate. We asked for Lilies of the Field, which we were going to try to show earlier in the year. But that didn't happen because other people involved with Poitier's legacy, we're showing it. And Mm -hmm. because we're in L.A., we're actually up against... Everyone's showing Right? We're up against other movie theaters and other groups that are showing his picture. So that was why, if you're wondering what's been going on, why we haven't shown a City Poitier movie, uh, it's because that. So we showed 400 Blows and then Tuesday the 15th over in Los Feliz, uh, American Cinematheque, um, uh, 7.30... Uh, kickoff, and uh, I'll be doing another Sidney Poitier tribute on the night, and then we're going to show it to Sir With Love, which you ha- if you haven't seen, is um, one of his most magical and colorful films, okay. because it's it's just a, a great, great coming-of-age feel-good movie. I just wanted to say uh, um, that the film club is still going, and it's on uh, SoundCloud, and if you go to com, we haven't given up on it. Uh, we've been showing pictures all year uh, over in Los Feliz. That's our new spot to show pictures next to a French Bistro in fact mm-hmm. and uh it's great fun um, and the wa- bookstore and the bookstore yeah it's a, it's a for a neighborhood in LA there's a theater showing three usually one arty film retro film and then a first run film and then next door French Bistro and then next door Skylight, Skylight Books, Books where I did a book reading for the smartest book in the world once upon a time uh, they're lovely and the neighborhood's good fun if you're ever in LA I think some of your hip friends will go Los Feliz And then you'll go, what is this, 2004? And then they'll go, what are you, in swingers? Um, Let's see, Wisconsin Dems, uh, we're raising money uh, just before we get off the politics. Um, Wisconsin Dems are a group that is run out of Wisconsin. And I did a big benefit with them last year with a bunch of comedians, a stand-up show, or before the election in 2020. And we raised all kinds of money. And it was a a big, long affair. It went on forever. And I did stand-up on it. And they were really organized. And here's the point of working for Wisconsin Dems. Because this year, in 2022, um, Ron Johnson is uh, the current senator from Wisconsin. And he's one of America's great traitors. He, he, you know, uh, Wisconsin has the checkered past of having Joe McCarthy be one of their senators. senators. And uh, I don't think there's been a worse senator since him uh, till Ron Johnson, who's just astonishingly shitty.
1: And uh, Mandela Barnes is running against Ron Johnson.
0: So that's the point of this uh, uh, benefit that we're doing on March 20th. It's going to be online. It'll be a Zoom thing. It hasn't come out yet, but you'll hear about it in the next week. Who's doing it? Uh, Me, uh, Drew Carey, Ryan Stiles, and Dave Foley. Yeah, that's right. It's a Zoom hang with me. Drew Carey, Ryan Stiles, and Dave Foley. Dave Foley is back in the reformed Kids in the Hall and declared on Canadian television last week in front of Colin Mochrie that he doesn't find improv funny and that fantastically, having been in a sketch group for 30 years, doesn't find sketch funny. Uh, I can attest that Dave Foley never jokes. So uh, Drew Carey will be there. You remember him. Um, He was a fan dancer in the 80s. And then Ryan Stiles, who I've worked with for years and still... Still don't know his middle name. <laughs> um, the, so we're doing that on March 20th. And we're going to try to raise money for um, the whole beat Ron Johnson affair, which would be Mandela Barnes. Mandela Barnes. So join us for that. You'll, I'll, be, I'll be posting about it and jazz like that. We're going to try to do as many political things as we can to raise money for the candidates before the 2020 election, which is a huge one. Because Rand Paul is running. Ron Johnson is running. We can beat a bunch of people and we can actually turn the beat around um my advice and i think you would agree with this jennifer is let's really focus on the races we can win Mm -hmm. which are arizona georgia wisconsin pennsylvania uh north carolina Uh, those are winnable states some of the states you know sherry
1: beasley is running for senate in north carolina sherry beasley in north carolina Mark Kelly is running for re-election in Arizona. Uh, Reverend Warnock is running for re-election in Georgia. Val Demings is running for Senate, Senate in Florida. Florida. Uh, these are all really important elections.
0: And those would be the ones I would really focus on. That and, of course, every local election in your town. Don't let your school board get run over by Nazis because that's the big plan.
1: Well, and governors and attorney generals, it's mm. every Judges. single uh position, every election matters and you have to pay attention to what's going on because uh, right-wing activists are trying to act at a very local level and you have to be aware of, you know, your school boards, everything.
0: Microscopic level. When I say you don't let Nazis take over your school boards, I don't mean that in a general that's a bad thing way, which it is. I mean, when the school board election comes up, which it will in November, it might in your neighborhood actually go through the ballot. Look who's running for the school board, Google them yeah. and find out a little bit of information about them so that you can avoid by accident voting for the Nazi who's running. We've made a few accidents here. I made a few accidents that made that a terrible sound and we didn't clean them up either, even though I had paper on the floor and I was trying to be proof trained after the pooper bowl. Um, We've made a few mistakes here on the ballot over the years in L.A. I know I have. And voted for people that I regretted later who I who fooled me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it can happen. And uh, I think it's just...
1: But you have to do, do diligence yeah, to... Um, that's all I'm
0: saying. I'm not saying you have to... Try to
1: prevent that from happening. You
0: don't spend every moment of your life willing the school board to be better. You, When the time comes for you to vote, you might think about actually paying attention to who the candidates are so that... We don't get taken over. Will we win this election in 2022? That's it for grabs. Can we win it? Yes. I'm not of the school that I don't listen to the CNN or, or MSNBC or Fox News or well, look what the happened New York with, Times. Uh,
1: the whole redistricting scare. Well, it didn't work out for Republicans. It
0: didn't materialize. They didn't get <laughs> what they wanted.
1: Because they're diminishing numbers. And that is the, the truth. And so if we turn right out and vote, we win. Yeah. We win.
0: Our whole card is um, we outnumber them. Uh, or, as Kenneth Morris said in The Producers, I'll rank you! Um, there's more of us.
1: That's a great character to reference in this argument, Greg. Um,
0: what I want to do is portray our side as Nazis who come <laughs> in and bowl the other side ever. I'm tired of them having that uh, death grip on Nazis. I want to talk about one little thing, and then I want you to definitely go there. Uh, Barry Bonds didn't get in the Hall of Fame. You brought it up, by the way. You brought up Barry Bonds. I wow. wasn't. Yeah, you wow. triggered this. Um And I just wanted to say a couple of things. Uh, If you think that he cheated and you think he's a bad guy and uh, you don't think he should go in, you're entitled to to that opinion. Sports is
1: always fair, right?
0: hmm, No matter how misguided it is. First of all, know that the Hall of Fame is an institution that's bent over backwards to make everything right as long as it could. Since its inception, uh, they've sought to put women in and and never marginalize anyone. And really not glorify the old white guys of the 20s and 30s. The Hall of Fame has been all about being an egalitarian organization that tried to lift every race and creed up as hard as humanly possible. I'm using sarcasm, of course, here. (laughs) Um, They're about as white and entrenched in, in their ways as they can be. And I think that they voted themselves into a little bit of irrelevance right at the moment. Let me put it that way. And the reason why I think that they voted themselves into irrelevance is everybody knows Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds were the two best players of the generation. They started at the same year, 84. They both developed and became awesome in the mid-80s and then went on to dominate their their positions, pitcher and hitter, for the end of time. Um, did they juice? Probably, yeah. Yeah. Um, was it legal when they did yeah did the owners profit from it yeah the commissioner who was commissioner then who could have for the players safety by the way said to the players union we should really ease up on the steroid thing because I think that we know how know how the players bodies are going to react to it instead of saying that they looked the other way took all the money and let Mark McGuire and Sosa break the home run record which they're not in the hall of fame either Mark McGuire and Sosa Mm -hmm. who they decidedly should be Um, then Barry went on to have the enormous illustrious career um was he friendly and nice to the reporters no not at all never um Isn't was he that
1: the overriding reason why he's not in the hall of fame
0: well let me put it this way if a white guy is uh nasty and snotty and spits at you and stuff he, he's um uh self he's willful and uh colorful and um right
1: color rash
0: uh, all those things big bad per- boy big
1: personality yeah, they, oh
0: god huge i can't contain him uh, and if you're not a white guy and you are, most of the writers are white guys and you act uh, indifferent and perhaps arch and snotty, um, you're perceived quite differently. And yeah, that carries over. And also the morality of him cheating when you look at the um, vast panoply of crimes that are committed by so many Hall of Famers, uh, as Bill James did point out quite rightly, there's a lot of great baseball superstars who are beautiful people. Henry Aaron, for instance. Willie Mays. We've
1: met many of them.
0: Oh, my goodness. Uh, uh, just J- Dave Stewart. Like, just lovely, lovely people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Dave Stewart's not in the Hall of Fame. Now there again.
1: Just crazy.
0: Do, to win for 20 games in a row, four years in a row. To be one of the best pitchers in the American League next to Roger Clemens. Mm-hmm. Um, to go to the World Series with several different teams. To be absol- literally unbeatable in the Division Series. Mm-hmm. He is 8-0. and oh career in the division unbeatable uh and still not going in the hall which brings me to the negro league uh, museum and the negro league hall of game obviously i feel like barry should have gone in and i think that the reasons they made themselves irrelevant is you can't moralize about that steroids are bad we know steroids are bad we have to look at all the conditions um if you want to argue about personal traits and awful things like that i think we can absolutely bring that into the argument um i think though as an institution um, they're supposed to preserve history, and the history of the game includes, for better or worse, racist drunks, wife beaters, cheaters, gamblers, and uh, bad actors. And it also includes Stan Musial and and bloody, you know, uh, Tony Gwynn. And you know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of really groovy, groovy people who do love their mother and Lee her, Smith, Lee Arthur Smith, who finally
1: right, right. Went finally. In the,
0: finally went in the Hall of Fame. He saved over 400 games and he didn't go right in? You tell me what's going on. Anyway, that's my point. And um, hopefully, we'll see. We're going to do the um, Negro Leagues Hall of Game this year. Hopefully, that's coming up in July. Um, We've talked about it. I'm not going to guarantee anything. And um, we'll see some more people honored that really deserve it. Like the last time we went, Dave Parker, Fred McGriff, Eric Davis. It was so
1: wonderful. um,
0: To see them get, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting one uh oh sharon robinson was there mm-hmm. but uh, was there another ball player in any case uh they're all dave parker how could he not be you know one of the all-time greats
1: uh wasn't it eric davis
0: eric davis i mentioned who's from here in los angeles and is uh not only was he a superb ball player who i got to see quite a lot um He's an, amor- he's an enormously uh, beautiful human being. He's really mm-hmm. uh, caring and sharing. And uh, all of them are charitable. All of them um, really give back to the community and are awesome. So The,
1: the thing that, that is also just stunning in their absence in the Hall of Fame is how much they care about the game.
0: I don't think anyone tried to be more exciting than Barry Bonds. Uh, two things. Uh, when he was at his top, um and his father was still alive Bobby who's also a hero um they were interviewing him before season one year like early 2000s late 19 in 90s and they said do you need to get in shape during spring training which is March into April and he said no I'm already in shape when I show up at spring training because I've spent the entire off season working out every day as you do and he said um, further, which by the way nobody used to do of course yeah. lots of players do it now but he trained like Jerry Rice trains like really trained and he said um, I don't even pick up a bat for the first two weeks um, of the month before I get to spring training before you get to spring training I don't pick up a bat and the writer said what do you do and he said I put my glove on and stand at the plate and have my father throw me strikes wow. and he goes that's a curveball up and in that's a, um, uh, a fastball down and away. And he says, and thereby playing hitter, a batter as a defensive position with my glove in my hand. As you recall, he was left-handed, so he wore his glove on his right hand. He could figure out where the ball was going for two weeks. That's all he did. Just every day, all day, have his father throw pitches to him. And then he said, then I pick up a bat and I got a much better idea of the strike zone. And as you know, he walked a billion times and didn't strike out very much. And um, used to hit home runs on balls that were basically foul balls that people would hit foul. And not all of that is drugs and steroids and, you know, a, a lot of it is dedicating yourself to the game like no one's ever really done.
1: Well, it's like a Ted Williams kind of approach. Well,
0: I mean, Ted Williams uh, absolutely worked on where the ball was all the time. That was, his, oh, mind you, he had like likeberry, extraordinary eyesight mm-hmm. and fantastic reflexes, which are two very good things to have um anyway let's move on and the other player thank you jennifer was fred mcgriff the crime dog and ever so briefly and not to beat it into the ground we were talking about philosophies of hitting and all that jazz i asked fred mcgriff who had 490 something homers uh what were you thinking when you went up to the plate? What were you looking for? And he looked at me and he went, I'm looking dead red every pitch, which means I want a fastball over the plate low that I can drill for a home run. And I went, well, aren't you care about like if it's outside or inside and trying to pull it or you know go to the other field? And he went, you have one and a half seconds to decide because that's when (laughs) the ball gets there. He goes, there's one and a half seconds to decide what you're going to do. So he said, my philosophy was... And I was like, that is amazing. And I wonder how many people do that. Barry made it a science, obviously. Some people do. But Fred McGriff had 492 home runs or whatever in the big leagues. Yeah, but like he
1: wasn't thinking about every aspect of that. Of
0: course he was. Uh, But I just thought that was a, it made me laugh because you hear (laughs) writers really like to go on about how batters should be patient and do this and do that. And you think, really? Really? You put it on the line like that, one and a half seconds. And by the way, it's whizzing. And you can hear it because it's throwing real hard. And when it hits the mid, it makes that noise that you can hear on the stands. And the pitchers are expert. No one gets to be in the big leagues unless they can really dazzle you with some shit. Um, There's not a lot of guys up there who are terrible. Uh, (laughs) And then there's a bunch of guys who are really unhittable. So, all right, here we go.
1: Um, Andrea Jenkins, who uh, you interviewed on the podcast.
0: Friend of the show.
1: Um, She was unanimously elected as the president of the Minneapolis city council. She made history in 2017 when she became the first openly trans black woman elected to public office in the U S she made history again, when she became the first openly transgender president of a city council in the United States. Um, she's a hero. She is a poet. She's a writer. She's just she's a wonderful person, Um, and this is why things are getting better. She's making history, and there's currently a record of more than a thousand LGBTQ people serving in elected office across, across the United States. Wow! And you know, hooray for them. Their their bravery. Their a willingness to uh, to serve America yeah. in this fashion um, she's so thoughtful and uh she also won a, a visionary award a couple months ago um, because you know she, she's just a she's a hero for minneapolis
0: oh the united States so courageous and so fantastic and a wonderful politician. And uh, we've had the real pleasure of being able to hang out with her a few times. She came to the Who's Line show, and um, we did the uh, the ACLU. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a, an awesome chat show that you put together with um, with them, um, uh, Andrea, Ms. Andrea Jenkins, and she was a fantastic guest and read her poetry,
1: mm-hmm. which is really wonderful.
0: Yeah, it's just fantastic. So she, we're really she happy. She read
1: a, a poem in Minneapolis uh, after. Yeah the horrible death of George Floyd, which occurred in the district that she represents. Yes. So it couldn't be more profound that that she is now the president of the city council. Um, congratulations to her.
0: Uh, yeah, she's, it's just an awesome achievement. Uh, fantastically, speaking of girl groups, uh, Rosa Hawkins was in an awesome group from New Orleans called the Dixie Cups that fantastic game. her and her sister Beverly and their cousin uh, formed the group and then um, they had a couple of bitching hits and I'm going to play one now that you'll know immediately because it's in everything ever. And not that one because I didn't tee up the one that it is. This is the Dixie Cups and Rosa Hawkins. such a mellow New Orleans arrangement on this. Mm-hmm. The finger snaps in the beginning when they do the acapella part and then the horns and everything. It's a really swank girl group song. Is it? And then because New Orleans is all about Mardi Gras and everything, you'll recognize this one because it's a traditional and they had an actual hit single with it as did a million other groups.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, my mind, since it runs to the... Oops.
1: I'm not sure certain that anyone has figured out the real origin of this song
0: right what is it actually
1: well it's about the neighborhoods that have the flags right like the cruise in New Orleans that we see on Mardi Gras Mm -hmm. Um, they would have actual and maybe like rap battle fights in their sure staking their territory but are we talking you know how far back hundreds of years is this song going
0: I think it's one of the early traditional ones what makes this so bitchin is aside from the fact that they're from New Orleans and they did this unbelievably important song to New Orleans is the instrumentation this is a single yeah maybe a little bass in the back there that's Uh it this is you are getting the mardi gras sound they're clanking and clicking and there's hoots on the outside, and it's pretty wild this was a hit record
1: well and this is so new orleans but the the sound and the run out sound yeah you know there there's a community of
0: uh yes there is a community uh Chapel of Love is Jeff Berry and Ellie Greenwich, um, who, of course, were giant hit songwriters. And Chapel of Love was number one in 1964 since we were talking about the Beatles and knocked Love Me Do off the chart. Wow. So uh, the Dixie Cups are awesome. Rosalie Hawkins is swirling in the heavens. Are we going.
1: Yes, I, because we're talking about New Orleans, um, we had mentioned on a previous podcast uh, about a. Elderly veteran yeah. who wanted birthday cards and I asked people to send him a birthday card we sent him a birthday card um,
0: he was over a hundred wasn't he he
1: we we lost him uh, this month last month in January he was a hundred and twelve no a hundred and twelve Wow and not Lawrence Brooks uh, not only was one hundred and twelve but he celebrated that birthday and he danced he had frozen yogurt people came by they diverted one of the the
0: uh, mardi gras crews
1: yeah to to pass by his house wow. according to this a bit in, in uh, the new orleans picayune he even danced a few steps on his porch at his socially distanced birthday party um he
0: it looks like people are singing to him in that picture.
1: Right there, there is a trio that's singing yeah, to him. Fantastic! Um, he received more than twenty-one thousand cards wow. for his birthday.
0: The governor called him, and didn't uh, Biden call him?
1: Biden spoke to him last year, uh, and uh, our vice president mm-hmm. uh, wished him well this year. Um, and then he passed away uh, the beginning of January. He was given the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal, a uh, Good Conduct Medal, Meritorious Service Medal, Presidential Unit Citation, and World War II Victory Medal. 112.
0: Yeah, he served in the Pacific.
1: And he his nickname was Honey. Really? And a, Honey Brooks. A, a jazz procession uh, will follow the services.
0: We were saying it's only yesterday.
1: Well, Bi- Biden, I remember said to him. We both look the same, right?
0: We we haven't aged.
1: And he just... uh, Uh. um, And the LA Times is doing a a lovely thing with uh, running obituaries of the people that lives that we lost Mm -hmm. in California to COVID. And one of them was Theodore Lumpkin, who was 100, 100 years old. Um, Another veteran. He was a member of the Tuskegee Airmen. And his eyesight wasn't so good at the time to become a pilot. So he was an intelligence officer, uh, during his overseas combat tour in Italy. Wow. Um, he earned his bachelor's and master's from USC while he was in the military. He was a Lieutenant Colonel and so complete underachiever. Right. He, He lived in Los Angeles. He became a social worker. Um, he, uh, gave talks about, uh, You know, inspiring people to do what they might be able to do Mm -hmm. for their community um, and uh, try to be an inspiration to others always. He described it as your own Tuskegee experience. He uh, received an invitation from uh, Obama's White House, President Obama's Mm -hmm. White House, to go to the inauguration. And he uh, was part of the Tuskegee Airmen who received the Congressional Gold Medal uh, when Obama was in office. Um, The thing that I couldn't believe about this particular uh, story was before he got COVID, he was able to live life on his own terms. He enjoyed taking drives down Pacific Coast Highway. And had recently purchased a new white Kia Sport. <laughs> he, uh,
0: driving down the PCH in my Kia Sport. Now remember, right? Bumping. So this
1: is when he's hundred. Uh huh. Remember that. He By the way, wasn't, I'm not
0: allowed to drive. He wasn't able it, to
1: become a pilot right, because of his eyesight. In what year? Yeah, 1942, yeah. And uh, this says he'd occasionally call in a takeout order at the Hilltop Coffee and Kitchen in Inglewood for a breakfast sandwich. And he had learned how to use Zoom for conference at and board meetings. Wow.
0: I want to know, like you knew, was there a vision test at any point? Or are you still... <laughs> We're driving the Kia Sport. The PCH, by the way, you guys, is a little harrowing. It's a beautiful road, but oh my goodness. No, it's
1: pretty wild.
0: People go 100 miles an hour in both directions right next to the sea. And it's... Uh... That's awesome. What
1: a beautiful long life. And as his relative said, he won in the game of life. Uh, I like. Uh, there's to... a third person, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Say, uh, that I wanted to uh, share the story about. And now I'm going to have to find it. <coughs> Here it is. Um,
0: Another Tuskegee. Yeah. Yep,
1: Charles McGee. And he, uh, remember, uh, we were watching uh, the vice president phoned him last month, he turned 102.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: Um, he was a uh, retired, and this is amazing, an Air Force Brigadier General. Wow. Who flew combat missions in three wars and broke racial barriers as a Tuskegee Airman, serving in an all-black unit during World War II. Um Helping inspire the next generation of aviators with his fortitude and courage. That's from the Washington Post eulogy. Uh, He, what I love, it it says he was 102, the cause of death not yet known. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: Wouldn't be age. Uh, He was uh, also in Vietnam and Korea. Yeah, the cause of death not known, lived to 102.
1: Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin Vice President Harris both called him an American hero. One of the last surviving Tuskegee airmen who... uh, Overcame oppression to fly World War II combat missions at a time when the armed forces were still segregated. Um, he said, once we proved that we could fly, they said we didn't have the guts to fight in combat, but our record speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he, the Tuskegee Airmen, were credited with destroying more than 250 enemy aircraft, including a German fighter that General McG- McGee shot down while escorting B-17s over Czechoslovakia. Oh my God! He had a 30-year career in the Army Air Forces and its successor, the Air Force. He logged 6,300 flying hours and a remarkable 409 409 combat missions. Bombing and strafing missions in the Korean War piloted a reconnaissance plane base near Saigon during the Vietnam War, going on at least 100 combat missions in both uh, conflicts. Uh, He said, folks say, you're a hero. I don't see it like that. I just say life's been a blessing.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: The thing that was amazing, too, is... uh, not only their their lives of service and the longevity of their lives, but that when both of these, uh, uh, Lawrence Brooks and uh, Charles McGee, spoke with the president the vice president, they were uh, really of sound mind and, mm-hmm. and body. Sharp, at sharp. At that age. And, and a sense of humor. Phenomenal. And quick
0: and awesome, yeah. No, they weren't, they didn't seem, uh, uh, you know aged or whatever the word is when you're a little slower because of age. No, they were all just awesome yeah, and so lively. Well, I guess maybe being engaged and uh, together and, and involved in your world might keep you...
1: Well, exactly. And lock, all, and lock, always, baby. always, yeah, and always engaged with, with the uh, their social causes.
0: Oh, no question. Yeah, he really is a hero. Uh, Lucy Harris uh, is what she was known as. Lucia, She was the shit hot greatest basketball player, women's basketball player in the 70s. Yeah, she played pro for a little while. It was a small pro league. She went to the gigantic uh, women's powerhouse of Mississippi Delta State University. Um, she passed away. She was a bit young, 66 years she old. Was-
1: far too young
0: uh people have uh, well, she
1: was the first and only woman to be drafted into the nba which right. is
0: exactly i buried the lead she got drafted in the nba because her career was so astonishing and by the way women's basketball wasn't even acknowledged by the ncaa when she was wow. playing that um she is the mother of women's college basketball and her team awesomely was called the lady statesman they were selling out all the games and uh she was pretty focused she's quite tall And um, they won a bunch of championships. And in 74 to 75, um, they played awesomely uh, Immaculata for the championship in Harrisburg, right? So they had a national championship. And Immaculata was a Catholic women's college at the time. I wanted to read you this because I thought it was such a great story. They were defending their national title. And the fan base included dozens of nuns in full habit who were then pounding spoons and buckets and pots <laughs> during the game. Uh, Harris, our Lucy, um, 32 points, 16 rebs. They won 90 to 81 in that game. And Delta uh, State, the lady statesman, the lady statesman went 28 and 0 that season. With wow. her, her lifetime av was 25 points a game.
1: There's a documentary coming out about her. Is it, it already she, out?
0: She's someone that, yeah, she's, I don't think so. She's someone that, um, Pat Summit was on, uh, the Olympic team with her. And it was the first women's Olympic team to go play basketball. Right. And you know, Pat Summitt is the legendary women's basketball coach. She was Pat Head then, um, She scored the first basket, Lucy Harris, in Olympic history, and they won the silver that year. And Summit said she was like Shaquille O'Neal, a dominant center, so strong in physical, great hands. And um, she got drafted into the NBA, and she didn't show up uh, to do it. Well, a couple years before, the Warriors had drafted a woman as kind of a publicity type thing. Right. And... But she was officially drafted by the NBA team, and she thought that it might have been a publicity stunt. So she played with Houston in the pro leagues and then, of course, coached um, at Texas Southern and taught and coached in Mississippi. And uh, is an immortal. She's in the Basketball Hall of Fame. She's one of the great women basketball players. Had she been. Here it is. Oh, there it is. What's it called? The Queen of Basketball with the documentary short yeah, film.
1: Shaquille O'Neal. Well,
0: Shaquille made the picture. Uh, w- what I was going to say was when she swirled off, all of the giant basketball superstars weighed in on her. Everyone knew about uh, Louisa Harris because she was so amazing. Had she been one, uh, had they let women play uh, in the biggies she would be more famous. And also, had there been a giant, flourishing women's professional league like there is now, she would have been dominant in that as well. And there's no question of that. Anyway, she's a brilliant, brilliant person and a wonderful athlete. She's swirling off into the heavens. And again, like you were talking about people breaking ground and how Leontale, I, Leontali, it, people say it, but it's true because America is divided up that way and the 20th century breaks down that way. Everyone gets called Jackie Robinson, even though there were a million Jackie Robinsons before there was Jackie Robinson. Mind you, there was a million Buddhas before the Buddha. So, uh, uh, but it's true. Andre Leon Talley is deeply the Jackie Robinson of fashion. Mm-hmm. And uh, Louisa Harris is one well, of it, the it, great... it,
1: it takes uh, people elevating the stories of all of these characters. It's
0: true. It just takes acknowledgement.
1: Yes, and, and lifting them up. Recognition. And... and uh, reminding people of of their glories
0: well by the way since it, uh, it is black history month and we've been talking about a lot of uh historic black people and black heroes that's something that i think people could um de themselves from the white story and the narrative and, and kind of try to take in a little more of them
1: um, in in that regard may i uh point out that one books is online our old buddies and you, you yes James Fugate and Tom Hamilton own S01 Books it's an independent black bookstore in Los Angeles in Leimert Park and they know everything about everything and if you need to be steered in a, in a direction if you have a question about where to start with a topic about black history mm-hmm. about black literature poetry graphic books what have you um, they I can't uh, recommend them enough.
0: Have you mentioned the cookbook? Uh...
1: Yeah, I have. The Princess Pamela. Oh,
0: Princess Pamela, yeah. Um, Just fantastic.
1: And the Lewis, uh, uh, High on the Hog, which was made into a Netflix show. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've mentioned all those.
0: Well, S1 Books is like a great choice to go to the source. Will you spell it because it's a weird...
1: Oh, it's weird.
0: It's a unique spelling. <laughs>
1: Um, I it's b- not a I believe, Z. It's not as es- one. I, es- I believe it means something about uh, water on rocks. It, I didn't mean weird.
0: I meant it was uh, e- a. Right.
1: It's E S O, uh, second word W O N books. Yeah, that's right. I mean. it's, it's
0: it's a spelling that is uh, unique. Let's put it that way. We already talked about Sydney Poitier because we're showing to serve with love, uh, and let's dive in.
1: But yeah, exactly.
0: To uh, so, serve so with love is the middle of the. Giant career, but probably the year when he was the biggest box office star in the world.
1: It, it was and absolutely the year he was the biggest box right? he office made star three giant films.
0: Guess who's coming to dinner and, um, in the heat of the night? And we've told you our heat of the night story, but it bears repeating again anyway. We went to see Sydney Poitier, uh, here in LA, and the AFI was doing a giant thing, and they had what, 18 different stars.
1: And he was in uh, the Cinerama Dome. Yeah. Which, which was awesome to see him in person speak before in the heat of the night um, on that big screen, see it like that. And uh, he was just so uh, full of, well, star power, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and just charming and funny, self-effacing. Uh, he was everything that you thought that he might be. Then the next night we met, we ran into Haskell Wexler.
0: Yeah, we were at the TCM Film Festival. We got in a a room with Haskell Wexler and uh, Albert Maisel. And Haskell Wexler was the cinematographer from Hit of the Night. And we literally had seen Sidney Poitier and the movie The Night Before. And there's Haskell Wexler. We are introduced to them. And Albert Maisel, we'd met before, so we were friendly with him. And uh, I said to Haskell Wexler, we saw Hit of the Night last night. And fantastically, because he was the cinematographer, he went... How did it look?
1: <laughs> and dead sexy.
0: Tall, leather jacket, cowboy oh, boots. He was,
1: he was great. In
0: shades. Like, that's how he was dressed inside you oh, guys. He's,
1: he's another legendary medium cool. did Holly- he medium cool? Hollywood character. Yeah. yeah, he directed that. Um, he actually uh, helped design a lighting scheme for In the Heat of the Night mm-hmm. to uh, illuminate Sidney Poitier because it had never been done for a black star mm-hmm. in a Hollywood film, how about that? It's what year are we talking about?
0: Sixty-seven. Yeah, unbelievable. So, yeah, his he uh, his effect on film and his effect on American cinema and worldwide cinema and kind of society is
1: yeah eh, activism, activism absolutely. absolutely. You can't really overestimate the, the Sidney
0: Poitier. Whole
1: package when he came to New York from the Bahamas. Uh, he wanted to get a gig in theater and he was uh, at the American Negro theater. He read and he couldn't read the script well. Mm-hmm. And there's an interview with him that you can find online uh, where he he gets teary talking about he was a dishwasher and uh, an older. Well, he's. I think he said, "Elderly Jewish waiter." Right. Uh, asked him uh, what was going on in the newspaper, and Sidney Poitier admitted that he couldn't really read the the news. Uh-huh. And the waiter, in a very uh, ginger fashion, said, "Well, would you like me to go over the paper with you?" Mm-hmm. He didn't say, "Like, can I teach you to read?" Right. He he and. Sidney Poitier starts to tear up talking about it. Yeah. And he said every day the man would help him to read. And it's almost impossible to imagine that his patois was an issue right, right. He of b- heavy
0: heavy Caribbean patois. Somehow
1: that was a yeah. uh, he he started as he understudied for Harry Belafonte at the American Negro Theater. In New York,
0: uh-huh.
1: and uh, is there
0: anything about him that isn't impressive?
1: He was a janitor at a right. the theater because oh he couldn't get the gigs. Mm-hmm. When he started to uh, get cast in things, he started investing in restaurants. Wow. He was always afraid that he wasn't going to make it, yeah. and needed a backup plan. When he finally uh, he had been in a couple films. Um, as a doctor, by the way, in one of his first Mm -hmm. films, because he's Sidney Poitier, um, he got a call to be in, uh, for Blackboard Jungle. Right. He was 27 and married with kids. Was he really? And he took the phone call and he thought it was, they were kidding. He thought that they were looking for other people. And he's, because he was being cast as a high school student. Yeah. And he was 27 already and and. So he actually... Is that
0: Glenn Ford and Vic Morrow, yeah, is it? Yeah,
1: yes, exactly. Where Glenn Ford's
0: the, the teacher in the rough inner city school? Yeah, Glenn
1: Ford's the and teacher. And troubled youth? Yeah. And, and it really it jumbo. kind of, it, it sort of uh, it foreshadows to serve with love. Yeah. Because it's Glenn, Glenn Ford try, trying to wrangle this classroom and mm-hmm. and there's the, the gang member student Vic Morrow right. and there's the uh, you know, uh, the teachers are terrified. <laughs> and... Uh, they wanted uh, Sidney Poitier to audition to play the teenager that is going to be the pivotal yeah. character, and he, he couldn't believe it. And of course, he, he got the role, and it made him it made him a star. Mm-hmm. And it's just a few years later that he's the biggest star in the world, right?
0: Well, he won the Oscar for *Lilies of the Field*, and uh, uh, other than. Um, Hattie McDaniel, I don't think they'd ever given it to a black no. person. No, they had not. And, and it was a really giant moment in cinema. You know how Hollywood is. It's like baseball. It moves glacially. It seems like it doesn't, but it, it's not very reactive to the realities of the real world, which means sexism, racism. Yeah, no, he's, he's a titanic figure because we didn't... Uh, uh, Hollywood wasn't allowing a black man to be the lead. There
1: were zero opportunities. Yeah, he carved out that. he. Yeah. Uh, I think, the four, obviously, with everything that... Uh, this dynamo that was presented before people, but that's belying the horrible uh, ignorance, prejudice, bigotry of the whole uh, industry. Mm-hmm. He was the one. And he... There's so many connections to so many uh, actors that he helped get in, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. helped up the ladder. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just, you know, just take uh, case in point, Raisin in the Sun, Mm -hmm. which was a play that was the first Broadway play uh, produced... Written by a black
0: woman? A black
1: woman, exactly. And it became such a hit. And uh, opening night, when it was... was, uh, received so well. It was Sidney Poitier who brought Lorraine Hansbury, the author, on stage. Uh-huh. He's that man. Um I was reading that uh the
0: No, he's astonishing.
1: The the characters that are in that play, for instance, if you just go through the play Glenn Term Terman, who was on stage with him, he goes on uh, to be in Cooley High as Preach, right. which is an important 70s, from the 70s African-American film about high school. Yeah. Um, Keeping with
0: the Tissure with Love and Blackboard Jungle.
1: Exactly. He was Aretha Franklin's husband. Mm-hmm. He was Travis Younger in the original Broadway ah. production. And Louis Gossett Jr. was in it. Ruby Dee, the, the wonderful actress and mm-hmm. uh, uh, activist. She's in Do the Right Thing. She and Aussie Davis mm-hmm. are uh, the backbone of activism throughout the '60s.
0: And theater and film.
1: Um, Ivan Dixon.
0: Right. Yeah, who also who not went only was on to on direct. TV, right, was also director.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, by the way, the
0: talent pool that you're just mentioning here: Ruby Dee, Lewis Gossett, Ossie Davis, Lorraine Hansberry, Glenn Turman. Um, I'm, I'm building my team on this, and right? like you're saying, none of them were getting leads in movies. Then they no. were all in movies, and they were all on stage. But they had to eke out their own way. They had to forge their own way into theater and into mainstream entertainment.
1: The woman that plays the matriarch in A Raisin in mm-hmm. the Sun uh, was coaxed into acting by Ethel Waters mm-hmm. and was good friends with Langston Hughes. I mean, it is the overwhelming totality of the, of the you know titans of black uh, New York theater mm-hmm. writing, Literature. poetry. Yeah, I mean, it's just...
0: Having to b- build each other up too, because yes, white world isn't really getting it done. But
1: that's who uh, Sydney Poitier was for so many people. And when you said in, uh, Lily's in the field, the man uh, who is the butler in in the oh, heat yeah, of the yeah, night, fantastic. Uh, he he's in that wonderful scene where Sydney Poitier slaps the white in the heat the night, pig, yeah, pig, and uh, the butler behind. Uh, Sydney right, Poitier is Jester Hairston. Yeah. And Jester Hairston wrote Amen, which he sings in Lilies in the Field uh, because Sydney Poitier couldn't sing.
0: Right, so Sydney Poitier is lip syncing to it. Yeah. And you'll know the song because it goes like this Amen, mm-hmm. Amen, 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 Amen in the morning, Amen. That's the whole, yep. it's a beautiful uh, spiritual.
1: Jester Hairston was a. A composer, a songwriter, an actor. He he traveled the world with uh, choral groups mm-hmm. and almost always played butlers in film. And, you know, and so there you you have it. Right.
0: He played butlers. And he was a, a songwriter, a director, a choral uh, choral director. Mm-hmm. There was no talent he didn't have. He went have. to Juilliard. He went to Juilliard and he wrote hit songs and he played butlers in movies.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So, well, that's the thing about Sidney Poitier. Not only did he carry him along uh, with him in the giant wake, everyone subsequent to him. And I know this sounds funny to you guys because you live in this world, but I always say it about comedy, and no one will believe me because people get cynical. Even when I started in the early 80s, there wasn't as many women and people of color that got to be stars. And Not at all. There, you, there, were,
1: there were no comedy headliners right. that weren't white guys. Go
0: back 20 years before that and it's there's nobody getting to do anything that's not a white guy, basically. Oh. Read the news, uh, 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 be a baseball, you know, be a star, be a movie star, uh, TV star. It's just... So Sidney Poitier, everything I think that comes after is is kind of in his... Not in his trail. He's uh, He's moved the continent, you know, so that there could be the unbelievable amount of stars that we have now. And Denzel Washington and Michael B. Jordan. And of course, Halle Berry won the Oscar and everything. When
1: when Denzel Washington won his Oscar and Sidney Poitier was in the balcony. Yes. And he just, you know, to his look up at him, uh, he, it's so moving.
0: And they would given Sidney Poitier a... Uh, one of those Oscars on the night, a special Oscar. And so he was there getting an Oscar, and Denzel got the Oscar that night, too. And what was Denzel, the second best actor? I think Lou Gossett did one supporting Supporting. in between, as you just mentioned, Louis Gossett. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Sidney Poitier seemed to carry it with such grace, but he said... Uh, I, I can't remember the exact words, but something like he always felt that he was carrying fifteen thousand people with him yeah. every step of the way. What he, whatever he was doing, he took that on board.
0: And all of his movies, his unbelievable well, sexiness, dignity, and pride. He's almost always a doctor, a, 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 a an officer, some, someone that he's always in a position of authority. And is always teaching people. Now, in villages of the Field, he's not. He's kind of a scallywag who gets roped into doing something great. And and his, he changes and they change and everybody changes. It's a really delightful story. But they don't shy away from race in that there, picture. There's
1: one white guy in the film, and it's the director. Yeah. And he's a dick, the yeah. character he plays. And at the end, he, he begs Sidney Poitier's character to stay.
0: As a foreman not as a day laborer like in the beginning when he's being insulting and horrible Uh, and I think he that's the thing when he played Virgil Tibbs in Heat of the Night and that's the one I would recommend to you I would also recommend to Sir With Love the one we're going to show well what
1: did um, Michael DeBarre say about working with it he was a teenager when he was working right. with uh sydney poitier on that's the sister. rock
0: star michael DeBars <laughs> is the end to serve with love as one of the unruly kids
1: <laughs> with sunglasses yeah. on he's got a different pair of shades on in every scene right.
0: he's the sunglasses kid
1: um and he said he was the most noble man he'd ever most known yeah.
0: and that he was gonna cry when he was watching the movie yeah well we have met a yes. bunch of people from the movie fantastically including Lulu and Christian, who plays the thug kid in it. And all of them said Sidney Poitier is the greatest person they've ever known.
1: Yeah, yes.
0: And the story of that movie is, again, it's an inner city school, but this time in London. And Sidney <laughs> Poitier has come to London. And what is it? He's from Guyana or something? Right. A- he,
1: he's, he wants uh, to apply for an engineer job. Right. But, but he's stuck in this, this uh, kind of dastardly... A school where no one's going to go on to higher learning no no
0: it's, a, it's almost a reform school the yeah. principal tells him in the beginning we get the students that the other schools couldn't take that's who we're dealing with here. and yeah he he instills them with a sense of pride of course by the end they love each other mm-hmm. it's a beautiful movie heat of the night a uh, a Philadelphia detective who happens to be caught in a southern town they pick him up and think he's a criminal because a murder has been committed and then after incarcerating him, discover that he's a full-on murder detective in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And the redneck sheriff is forced to ask him to help him yep. solve this murder. And actually convinces his captain in Philadelphia to let make him stay in Mississippi. And
1: Right. He desperately oh, no, needs he does, yeah. Sidney Poitier yeah. to help him. And
0: Sidney Poitier does not want to do it. And they... It, the whole it's movie it's film yeah it's, it's astonishing it's
1: fantastic
0: and that's Norman Jewison who made a lot of uh, groovy movies it's kind of a Sidney Lumet type of movie it in the heat of the night but, because we're really dealing with all the big issues in it and um, that's the one where he slaps the white guys were guess he's coming to dinner I don't think it's as timely now perhaps might be seen you have to take it for but what it is what's,
1: what's this scene that we always Laugh about where when Sydney, I mean no, Spencer Tracy tries yeah. to balk about his daughter right. dating Sydney Poitier. The
0: daughter comes home and she tells him I met a guy, uh, and it's Spencer Tracy, and it's I think it's his last movie. He's yes. all grizzled and has white hair and sunglasses. Uh, Except he's rooms.
1: rather young. Yeah, and he goes, like, uh, "All
0: right, tell me about your boyfriend or whatever your fiance." And she's like, "Well, he is Negro," and Sydney Spencer Tracy's trying desperately not to be
1: mm-hmm. uh, uh,
0: the redneck. Irish guy, and gets on the phone to do some background checking on Sidney Poitier's character. Calls his office and goes, yeah, yeah, find out about this guy. And all you hear is the one-way conversation of his secretary reading him Sidney Poitier's um, resume. And he goes, he's deputy director of the World Health Organization. Okay, that's enough.
1: He's deputy.
0: (laughs) He's gone to Harvard. He's got all these, he has degrees. Sidney
1: Poitier in real life, I mean, we were talking about AFI, he founded the AFI with Gregory Peck and others. With
0: Gregory Peck and others. He
1: founded the AFI. He went on to direct, produce, yeah. uh, be a political activist his whole life.
0: Yes. Presidential Medal of Freedom, special Oscar, his own Oscar. There's really nothing Sidney Poitier do. We're all living in his wake. And... Uh, the Lilies of the Field, of of course, the three movies from '67. He made lots of other very interesting movies, like Paris Blues for the Love of Ivy. There's uh, a separate piece. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of movies on that cover.
1: Is a... is the uh, what's the name of the one where he goes to London and he's a doctor? Oh, what is the name of that one? And he uh, falls for an African dignitary right. daughter. Um, I'm looking it he, up. We're going to talk that about... happen. I yeah, mean, he he chose uh, and, and uh, really searched for those kind of yep. those kind of characters those kind of opportunities Is he a diplomat in that? He's no, a doctor he said He's a doctor and That's from the early
0: 70s, right? Yeah He directed Buck and the Preacher, right? Yeah. With Sydney Poitier He directed *Uptown Saturday Night I mean
1: with Harry Belafonte
0: Yeah, Harry Belafonte Mr. Tibbs For the Love of Ivy I guess who's coming to dinner A Warm December
1: I think that's it, yes, where he's Dr. Matt Younger. He's Dr. Matt, Matt Younger. younger. It's really... It's a romance. December. It's... It's, uh, you know, it, it's beautiful, and it's one that people don't often see. That's a
0: good suggestion. It really is. Um, they call me Mr. Tibbs, not as good as uh, Heat of the Night. They were um, trying to go what back... One of the, the...
1: the things that's uh, awesome about having social media was after, after uh, he swirled on... Reading about how many people in LA had chance encounters with him, and that he was just fabulous. That he was just hanging out, and doing his his chores. Like he would just do, yeah. you know, his rounds, his errands.
0: We we saw him at the supermarket, and
1: you're right. We saw him at the supermarket. He was he was getting his own groceries by
0: himself in a windbreaker. By
1: the way, this is you know groundbreaking for Hollywood. Yeah.
0: No assistant.
1: Star does, uh, you know, yeah. own errands. By the way, he
0: came by himself to the AFI thing we saw him at yes. and left by himself yes. and said, I'm going home because my wife's making a roast. Uh,
1: right. My wife's making a roast. <laughs> Gotta go. He also threw his script away and yeah. laughed. Yeah. He, he was he, like, I don't need. He
0: this. had a sheaf of papers that he was going to speak from. And after he started speaking, he realized he didn't need it and chucked it on the <laughs> ground and then laughed and then carried on.
1: Yeah, we, we saw him at, at the grocery store, and as I think you've said before, I I, I gasped. And I could see a little bit of a smile. He didn't turn, uh-uh. but he was like, yeah. Still uh-huh. got it. <laughs> and then um, uh, once I was uh, in New York at the Russian Tea Room, yes, the, only please. Time, I love this story. the only time I've ever been there, and uh, we were ushered in, and my friend and I, uh, we were led in a direction that we didn't really, we didn't want to sit in that area. Right. And uh, the hostess was adamant. No, like you, you want this table. And we kept saying, no, no, no. And she said, yes, you do. And we <laughs> sat down and we looked right. over and Sydney. Poitier. We don't Poitier, want this table. Sydney was right there with his wife. And we're like, yeah. oh my God. And he was, uh, you know, absolutely this, the legend in the room, mm-hmm. everyone was paying homage. He was hugging and kissing everyone. He was working the, the woman room. who ran yeah yeah. He was working the room. we were like, you're kidding. This yeah. is how he is on a on a daily basis. And
0: another friend also saw him at the Russian Tea Room. So obviously, he frequented the Russian Tea Fabulous. Room. Fabulous. And I would like some blini, right? <laughs> Yeah, I remember every,
1: everyone, every time he said anything, the entire room went yeah, quiet yeah. so that we could hear. Her.
0: Right, Sidney Poitier. <laughs> he's that kind of movie star, though. He's like John Wayne, Robert Mitchum, John Belmondo, you know, Jackie Robinson. Right, just Jerome and Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. he's just. Haribel Ivani. He's, yeah. he's all of them rolled into one. Well, you've been the smartest guy in the world. I've been the smartest man in the world. Join us the 15th for Trousseau with Love. Come and join us on the road with the Who's Love crew. My name's Ben Gregg and that's not the song I want to play my name's Big Greg you know mistakes are the yeah I'm going out with the Jennifer we're going to get to everyone else we missed in the next episode uh, I want to wish you nothing but love may every page that you turn be a satchel page may every bell that rings for you be a cool papa bell and if you have to buy bonds make sure they're very bonds Jennifer by the way has been the smartest woman in the world and we bid you sweet adieu And yes, whoa. Yes, we'll talk about the Negro Leaguers getting into the Hall of Fame on the next episode. I haven't forgotten my darlings. This is Little Lulu.